0: Good morning. I had to double-check my mic when that song was playing. It's always kind of that, a little bit of that paranoid fear. Of, Is my mic on? Are they going to hear me singing? They saw So <laughs> That's why I'm not on the worship team. Um, so, we have been preaching through Matthew, and we are now getting close to the end. There are 28 chapters. After today, we'll only have uh, three left, four left, four. Uh, Yes. So, today is Matthew 24, Sign of the Times. Now, if you're familiar at all with Matthew 24, you know, as Hyland said, that this passage just has a ton of uh, kind of apocalyptic, futuristic, revelation-type imagery in it. It has some very, very uh, explicit and precise statements about Christ, about certain things that are going to happen in a time frame some of which seem like it's not possible for that to be so, which makes the passage confusing on top of the imagery, which also makes it confusing. And then the passage is 51 verses, so it's a little bit long. And actually, so Jesus in Matthew 24 today is going to talk using uh, some of this type of imagery, and then Matthew 25, which will be the next two weeks of preaching, uh, he tells parables that basically he says the same thing he's saying in 24, but in parable form instead of prophetic form. So, really, 24 and 25 should all be preached as one sermon, but that's 97 verses, and that's just not going to happen. All right, so, (laughs) before we start, we're going to do a little bit of Biblical Prophecy 101. You see an onion. So, biblical prophecy is like an onion. The more you peel back those layers and get into it, the more it makes you cry. Uh, Actually, biblical prophecy is like an onion in that it has layers. And so almost all the prophecies in Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, have multiple fulfillments. So a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, as you read them, a prophet is prophesying to a certain people or person at a certain time, and there will be a fulfillment of that prophecy around that time, in that person's lifetime, within that year, week, or whatever the time frame is the prophet gives. But then there's also usually another fulfillment of that prophecy that's farther off. For the Old Testament prophecies, usually it points forward to Jesus, to his life, his death, his resurrection from the grave. And then there are not as many prophecies in the New Testament. There are a few though, and they tend to also have multiple fulfillments. And Uh, that will be important as we go through this passage. Jesus is going to prophesy about a few things, and everything that he prophesies about has multiple fulfillments. For time, we're not going to look at all the fulfillments for all of those. I'll mention some of them, but we're not going to really go into detail. But they're there. Uh, The other thing to say real quick about biblical prophecy is prophecy is not allegory. And what I mean by that is if someone tells you an allegory, Every piece of that story, every character in the story, every place, everything has some specific meaning. So uh, one of the parables that Jesus tells, the parable of the sower, is a prophecy. And so every character in that story, the farmer that sows the seed, the seed itself, the different types of ground the seed falls on, the animals that come, the different people, everything in that represents something. And Jesus goes through and explains uh, the farmer who sows the seed is God, the seed is the word of God, etc., etc., It can be tempting when looking at prophecy to take every detail of the prophecy and try and fit it into something, to an event in history or to a biblical event or something else. And sometimes you can do that, but sometimes you can't. So just to be aware of that. uh, Yeah. The other thing is, just a heads up for those of you who like to know a little bit of where the sermon is going, uh, because of the nature of the passage, normally when I preach I'll start at the beginning of the passage. We'll go verse by verse through the passage. That's not what we're going to do today. We are going to start at the beginning, but Jesus' disciples are going to make a statement. In response, Jesus is going to make a statement. In response to that, the disciples are going to ask a question. And the sermon then, what we're going to do is go through and look at the, it's really two or three questions depending on how you divide it up. We're going to look at the answers to that. So we're going to use the whole passage. But it's not like we're going to go verse 4, 5, 6, because as Jesus answers, he skips around a little between answering the questions. Uh, so there are some verses we'll spend a lot of time on, some that we'll just mention in passing and not really talk about. All right, Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So Jesus, uh, this last week of his life before his crucifixion, has been in the temple every day preaching, but he hasn't been spending the night in Jerusalem. He's been spending it in a neighboring town. So he gets up early every morning, walks into Jerusalem, goes to the temple, spends the day there preaching, teaching, answering questions, interacting with people. Then at night, he leaves and goes out of the city back to the town he's staying in. The Mount of Olives is on his way out, and that was a place when Jesus was around Jerusalem that he would stop a lot. He would go there to pray, uh, to be alone with his disciples, things like that. And uh, the Mount of Olives is a mountain, obviously, and then Jerusalem is also on a hill, kind of a mountain-esque type of thing. And so when you're on the Mount of Olives and you look across to Jerusalem, there's a valley between, so you can see directly to Jerusalem. And the temple at this time was just this amazing um, amazing complex. And it, has, it was overlaid in gold and precious stones. And so when you're standing on the Mount of Olives and you look across to the temple, you see this building that's shiny and covered in gold and just looks very beautiful and it catches the eye. And so Jesus has said, uh, you see this? All these stones are going to be torn down to the point where there won't be two stones stacked on top of each other left when the temple's destroyed. So they go out, they're on the Mount of Olives, they look across, they're like, oh yeah, Jesus said that thing about the temple, there it is, we should ask him about that. So they go to him privately and they're like, so this whole destruction of the temple thing, uh, what's going on with that? When's that going to happen? But then they also ask him, what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? Now, the when will these things be the destruction of the temple, that makes sense because Jesus just mentioned that. But these other two seem like they're kind of out of left field. Oh, and while we're on the topic, tell us about uh, your coming, even though you're here with us now, and the end of the age. You know, that's always good to know, when's the end coming, how can I be ready for it? So this seems a little bit odd, but this is actually in reference to the end of Matthew 23. So Matthew 23, the last three verses, Jesus is speaking, and he says he's coming up to Jerusalem, he sees Jerusalem, and he laments for it. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, which, ironically, they are about to do to Jesus, not stone him, but kill him. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's coming up to Jerusalem. His disciples are with him. They hear him say this, and he says, Your house is left to you desolate, meaning the city. And then he says that after this time, this week he's spending in Jerusalem, they're not going to see him again in Jerusalem for a while until they say this phrase. So. Uh, For the disciples, this is a lot to absorb. As a Jew, to hear that the temple is going to be destroyed is just a shocking and a horrifying thing because the temple is one of the physical representations of God's covenant with Israel and of uh, God's presence in the midst of Israel. He lived in a room of the temple called the Holy of Holies. His presence was manifested there in a special way, even though as God, he's present everywhere. So for them to hear, yeah, this temple, it's going to be gone. Oh, in your city, it's going to be desolate. And Jerusalem was a hard city to attack and take over because you had to come up on a mountain to it from any direction. It had three walls, and they were all thick and high as city walls tend to be. So this was not an easy city to take. This was not an easy city for an army to conquer. And so for Jesus to say these things is shocking for them, horrifying for them in a sense. And so, of course, they want to know when this is going to be. Just like if someone came to you today and said, yeah, you see this building? It's going to be gone. And Minneapolis, raised to the ground. You're like, whoa, whoa, when's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? What's going on? So, uh, Jesus, unlike many times when people ask him questions, is going to answer the question. So he is not going to answer the question with a question. He's actually going to answer it. But these are the questions we're going to look at. This Tell us when will these things be, these things being the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, and what will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? And the sign of your coming and the end of the age, I'm going to treat as two separate questions. You could lump them together, but it's just a little easier to do it that way. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, as it says in John, that the time is coming and has now come where we do not have to worship you in any specific building, because now we worship in spirit and in truth, not uh, in a certain location. That Those are the types of worshipers you want, those who don't just show up at a certain place, do some rituals and look good, but those who uh, seek you with their hearts, who invite you into their lives. Pray, God, that your spirit would uh, guide me as I preach. Uh, This is a long passage And the nature of this passage makes this sermon a little more lecture-teachy than normal, so I just pray for people's attention spans that uh, you'd help them to stay focused and help me to stay focused. Amen. All right, so we're going to treat this uh, chapter in two chunks. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter, I'm going to read through verse 34, and we're going to go through that, and then when that chunk is done, I'll read the rest of it and go through that. And most of our time will be spent in verses 4 through 34. So they asked these questions. When is all this going to happen? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places." All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on his housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, There the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So that's, you know, pretty self-explanatory, so I'll just pray and Hyland and the team can come up and we'll move on. (laughs) No, there is a lot there. I love it in verse 15 where he's talking about the abomination of desolation and inserts that parenthetical, let the reader understand. It's like, yes, of course, because as a reader, of course I understand what you're saying, except I have no idea what you're saying. So, yeah. So, tell us, when will these things be? The first question that we're going to address now uh, the destruction of the temple, we actually know when it was, now being many years after the fact. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70. Basically, some Jews decided to revolt against Rome, which was a very bad plan. Rome didn't like that so much, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. It took a couple of years, but they conquered it. And, uh, yeah, and it was truly horrifying. The, one of the historians who wrote at that time talked about when they actually breached the walls and went into the city. And basically, they went through and they just slaughtered everyone. Babies and mothers, old men and women, children. Of course, the fighting men who were fighting against them, they killed, but they just killed everyone to the point where they talk about having to climb over bodies or piles of dead bodies to get to the next person. They burned the entire city. And the uh, temple, it's interesting, Jesus' prophecy that not one stone will be left on another. And if you go... To uh, Israel and go to Jerusalem, all that's left of the whole temple complex, because it wasn't, there was the building of the temple, but then there were other buildings around it and there was a wall around it, and part of that wall remains, but there's nothing else. None of the stones are left, no piece of it, you can't see the foundation, like it's just gone completely. And the reason is partly because the temple burned and it was all overlaid in gold. So the gold melted and melted down in between the stones and the Roman soldiers tore literally every stone apart to get all the gold that they could get. And so that's how that came to pass, that there's not even one stone that was left on another. So, kind of cool in a horrifying way that uh, Jesus' prophecy happened with that degree of detail. So there's a lot here. And... uh, Verse 34 is the one that makes some of this tricky. Like if verse 34 was there, it was like, okay, Jesus gives a bunch of prophecies. Some of them, of course, are talking about the destruction of the temple. And then some of these that feel a little more futuristic and apocalyptic, that must be talking about the end of the world, the end of all things, something that's still in our future. The problem with that is 34, where Jesus says, truly I say to you. Now, everything Jesus says is true, but just as that emphatic thing of just a reminder that what I'm speaking right now is true. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So everything I just said in verses 4 through 33 will happen in this generation. Now, uh, the 12 apostles were the ones who came to Jesus and heard him say this. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation. History tells us was the last of the apostles to die. Also, the only one who wasn't martyred, he just got old and died, as people do. And he died around 100 A.D., give or take a few years. Revelation, the last book of the Bible written, was written around 95, and he died not too long after that. So, between when Jesus is speaking and about 100 A.D., everything that he's just said has to take place. Some of it, no big deal. It's like, oh yeah, wars, rumors of wars, yeah. Various natural disasters, yeah. But then you've got some of uh, some of these things like the sun and moon being darkened, not giving their light, stars falling from heaven, this abomination of desolation, Jesus apparently coming back as the sign of his coming. Uh, yeah, this makes it a little confusing. So, to set up some of the parameters, there's a before and after. Tell us when will these things be? It has to be before this generation passes away. So before about 100 AD, give or take a few years but it also has to be after some stuff. I've got a list of that. So it has to be after false prophets and Christs come, after wars and rumors of wars, after natural disasters, after tribulation, after the proclamation of the gospel throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, after the abomination of desolation, and after various signs. Uh, And as I said, some of these, no big deal. False prophets and Christs, you can read the other books of the New Testament and you see that. You see Paul and John and the other apostle writers talking about false prophets who have come and are teaching things contrary to the gospel. They talk about people who've come and claimed to be Jesus reincarnated or returned from the dead or something like that. So that one, even in scripture, we see that's fulfilled. Wars and rumors of wars. You see that. I mean, even in today's world, somewhere in the world, There's pretty much always war going on or rumor of war going on. So that's throughout history has been kind of a standard thing. And you see that also in the New Testament. No big deal. Natural disasters. Uh, Jesus specifically mentions earthquakes and famine. And uh, later in Matthew we'll see actually an earthquake happens at his crucifixion when he dies. And there are a few other earthquakes mentioned in the New Testament. So we see that one. And then famine in Acts 11, a believer, there's a group of believers meeting together and one of them stands up and prophesies that a famine is going to come uh, in so many years and then Acts a little bit later records the famine did come. So natural disasters, yes, uh, no problem fulfilling that. And then tribulation, and when people hear the word tribulation, often they think of uh, what some call the great tribulation, kind of at the end of this world, this time of extreme, intense suffering never equaled before, never to be equaled again, where Christians are kind of slaughtered wholesale throughout the world, where people who do it think they're actually doing a service to God and doing God's work. But if we look back at the passage uh, a little earlier, and sometimes that is what tribulation is talking about, but uh, here, um, all right, verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And what does that look like? putting you to death, being hated by all nations, people falling away, betraying one another, hating one another, and the love of many growing cold. So that definition of tribulation, again, we see in the New Testament. We see uh, at the beginning the apostles have a lot of favor. They have favor with the Roman government, favor with the Jewish leaders to a certain degree, at least favor to the degree they have freedom to meet and worship as they please. And then uh, something happens in Acts 8, verse, Basically, Stephen, one of the believers, comes before the Jewish ruling council, basically tears him apart, and then they kill him, and then a great persecution breaks out against the church, and then this hatred of them start, of the disciples and the apostles starts to grow. They're scattered. Some, most of them have to flee. Uh, they're hated by people. They're put to death. So again, the tribulation thing, no big deal. We see that. It's these last three that are usually an issue, the proclamation of the gospel throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, this abomination of desolation, whatever that is, what does that mean, and then these signs that have to appear, some in the heavens with uh, actual physical things happening with like the sun and the moon and the stars, and then these other signs with Christ. So those three are what we're going to spend most of our time on and hopefully figure out what Jesus is saying. And we're going to start with the proclamation of the gospel throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. So, uh, we're going to be looking at some passages from Acts for this, and uh, basically the contention is that I would say this actually was fulfilled by 100 A.D. uh, as Jesus is talking about here now, still to this day, There are people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the good news of the gospel, and that was true here. But Jesus doesn't say here that every person will hear. He talks about uh, all nations and does say it will go through the whole world. And we're going to see how, uh, from what we see in Acts and in Romans, how that was happening and was not quite fulfilled but was close to being fulfilled. All right, Acts 2. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews... Devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven sounds very similar to all nations. Interesting. So what was happening here, this is after Jesus has died, he rose from the dead, he's ascended into heaven, he's promised the disciples the Holy Spirit's going to come, stay in Jerusalem until it does. And it's also one of the Jewish feast days called Pentecost. And according to Exodus 34, uh, Pentecost fell on the same day as one of the Jewish feast days which was one of the three days out of the year that all Jewish males were required to gather together and worship corporately. And usually that would happen in Jerusalem. So every male Jew who was physically able uh, to get to Jerusalem, those who lived far away, no matter how far it was, and who was able to make the journey, um, you know, at certain times of year, if you had to cross the sea or something, and it was winter when it would be rough and dangerous, you might not be able to make it. And the way the Jewish calendar is, the, days, the feast days wouldn't fall on the same day of the year every year. So some years you might get there, some years you might not. But um, they were expected to gather if they were able. And uh, so it says, now you've got, so you've got Jews coming in, also dwelling in Jerusalem were Jews from every nation under heaven. So they're there for this feast, this celebration, this worship of God. The Holy Spirit comes on the apostles, and they all start speaking different languages. And then they leave this room. They go down out into the temple and they start proclaiming the gospel. That, you know, Jesus Christ, this guy who at that point a lot of them had probably been in the temple and heard Jesus preaching and teaching. They had seen him and they're like, this guy that you saw, this guy you saw die, he rose from the dead. And let us tell you some great news about that. So uh, they hear these guys come out and they're like, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And Galileans were kind of like, the backcountry, redneck, like you would not expect a group of 12 Galileans to stand up and start preaching and teaching in these about half a dozen different languages. So they're shocked that this is happening. How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadonia, Pontus in Asia, uh, Pyrrha, Pamphigla, the Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So, without anyone ever having to leave Jerusalem, without the apostles having to set one step outside of Jerusalem, the gospel is proclaimed as a testimony to all nations. Because Jews from all nations were there. So representatives of every nation in Acts 2 heard the proclamation of the gospel before the gospel starts to spread at all outside of Jerusalem. And as if you read on in Acts 2, Peter, after they're doing this, Peter gets up, preaches uh, the first sermon recorded in the New Testament, and uh, thousands of people come to Christ. And then it says every day people were being added and multiplied, and the number was growing and growing and growing, and there's this huge group of disciples. And then moving forward to Acts 8, as I said before, this is after Stephen is stoned. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now some of those who were scattered would have been people in Acts 2 who heard that. So you've got people from all nations and they have to flee. So, they, so Jerusalem is the city. Judea and Samaria were kind of the regions around that. So they flee there. And we see in other parts of Acts that also there were some who fleed even farther than that, to their, back to their own nations. Like if you're living in a city and you suddenly have to flee and it's not your native town, depending on how far it is, you might just go back to your native town, to people you know, a language you know, a culture that's more familiar, rather than trying to start over in another foreign place. So we see... That is not to the end of the world, but we see that first step in, okay, it was, it's been proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, and now it's beginning to go throughout the whole world. It's a little bit, a little bit farther out. And then Romans 15, 20 through 24. Uh, this is Paul writing at the end of Romans, and he's writing to the church in Rome that he had wanted to visit for a long time, but he never did. And he's going to explain here why he had never visited them before. Paul says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So Paul says, I wanted to come to you for a long time, but you've already heard about Jesus, and my passion is to preach to people who've never heard. So I didn't come to you because there were still people that had never heard, and I had to go to them first. But now, listen to this, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. It can be easy as we think about uh, people going out and sharing the gospel, basically doing missions in this New Testament sense to think, well, that's something that never ends. Like you go to a place and you start that work and it takes the rest of your life, and it's still not done, and then other people come and continue that work. But look what Paul writes here in 23. I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And what was his criteria for having work in a region? That Christ had not been named. So what he's saying is, uh, on his three missionary journeys, he says, I've done it. I've completed spreading the gospel in this part of the world. Every place has heard the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed. There's nowhere left in this region of the world for me to go. I have to go somewhere else where they haven't heard. So the proclamation of the gospel, uh, being missional in that sense, going out into other parts of the world, is something that can have an end to that task. And Paul is not saying here that every single individual had heard or that every single individual had received Christ, but he's saying there's enough gospel Penetration in each of these areas that there are people now that can share with the other people who haven't heard. I'm not necessary there anymore. So, uh, this throughout the whole world, we see Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, basically the Middle East, and then we see Paul on his way to Spain. A few other apostles mentioned going to other places, and we don't see this biblically, but church history tells us that uh, most of the 12 apostles who were martyred were martyred outside of the Middle East, that they did eventually make their way to other more remote regions of the world. And so biblically, we can't say from what we see in Scripture that the gospel was proclaimed throughout the whole world by 180. AD, but the combination of Scripture and the traje- trajectory we see with Acts and Romans and then what we have from church history and the early fathers, it appears that in this Paul sense, not that every individual is heard, but that there's enough penetration of the gospel in this area that people who haven't heard can hear from natives who live in that area, that that did occur. So, uh, we can say the gospel was proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, that doesn't mean, side note, that uh, there's not still a need for missions. Now, we're all missionaries. We all have people in our lives who, don't, who have not heard of Christ, or if they have, who do not believe. And so, we're all called to share that with people, to minister to people. But some in this room may be called not just to share in the place you work now in the Twin Cities. You might be called to share in a different part of the U.S., like the Devereux are being called to do in New York, or to move to a different part of the world, like some of our other missionaries are doing around the world. So there is definitely still a need for missions. There are still people who need to hear, and God is still calling people to that. And if God does call you to that someday, be encouraged that that's not a futile pursuit. It's not like you're going to spend 10, 20, 50 years on that, get to the end of your life, die, and think, well, that was kind of, I mean, yeah, some people were saved, but this will just keep going forever. It's like, no, just like Paul, there can be gospel penetration in an area, not to the degree that every individual's heard, but to the degree that you're not necessary anymore as an outsider and as a foreigner. And uh, hopefully, if uh, God is calling you, or we'll call you in the future to overseas missions. Hopefully something that, that that's something you keep in mind. The ultimate goal of a missionary who goes overseas should be to work themselves out of a job, to reach the point where the gospel has achieved penetration to the point that they're no longer needed. That, you know, I go to Germany, say, and my goal as I'm on my way to Germany, my thinking should be, God, I pray that someday the gospel goes forth enough that I can leave, that I'm not needed here anymore. So, there we see the gospel going forth. Uh, Now, the abomination of desolation. When will these things be? It will be after the abomination of desolation. Verses 15 through 21. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on his housetop not go down to take what's in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This part of the passage is where it's important to remember that uh, prophecy is not allegory. So... um, The main gist of this is there's going to be something abominable, something that is against God. It's going to be standing in the holy place, whatever that place is. And then this comment, let the reader understand, indicates that this is something when Jesus spoke it, that the people hearing it wouldn't have understood. But as readers who have more of history to look back on, this is something we should understand now. So something has happened between when Jesus spoke it and people are reading it, that makes this easier to understand. So there's going to be this abomination standing of the holy place. And when you see that happen, it's time to flee. And flee to the point where don't go back for food, don't go back for clothes in your house, just run. And notice he says, those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So it's not just uh, flee Jerusalem. No, flee Jerusalem, flee the surrounding towns. Get out of this area, get to the mountains. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. In winter, obviously, travel would be more difficult. Uh, The mountains in the Middle East do sometimes get snow if they're high enough. So snow wouldn't be the main concern, but storms, rain, some of that type of stuff would make travel much more difficult. And then if you did flee to the mountains uh, as you get near the top, there would be some snow depending on which mountain you were on. And then 21, it will be a great tribulation unequaled since the beginning of the world and never to be equaled again. Um, So, this is one of those areas, uh, there are multiple fulfillments for the abomination of desolation. And there are at least three or four, possibly more. And in one sense, an abomination just being something that's against God, there are tons of abominations. There are tons of times... Even in the Gospels, we've seen abominations in the holy place. When Jesus goes in and turns over the money changers' tables and kicks everyone out when they're selling in the temple, in one sense, that's an abomination, right? Because it's in the holy place, it's something that's against God. Now, that one's not necessarily an abomination that brings desolation, that makes things desolate. But there's one sense in which, yeah, abominations happen all the time in Scripture. There's another sense, though, this seems a little more specific. Than some of those. And uh, as I said, multiple fulfillments. We're not going to talk about all of those. We're going to talk about one of them, which in AD 70, when the temple's destroyed, so the Roman army is coming. They finally breach the walls of Jerusalem. They get into the city. They're kind of doing this urban guerrilla warfare through the city, slaughtering everyone, moving towards the temple. They get into the temple complex. They can't get into the temple building. There's a group of Jews who have barricaded the doors and uh, they're fighting, and uh, the Romans actually don't get into the temple. They throw torches through the windows and burn it down. And then once the people are dead and the building's burned, obviously it's a lot easier to get in. So then they do. So um, the abomination of desolation, standing in the holy place. Um, many commentators would say, and I would agree with them as one fulfillment of this, would be uh, Titus, who was at that time commander of the Roman army, he would later become emperor. This is not the Titus that's mentioned in the Bible as being like a son to Paul. Different Titus. Um, He was leading uh, the army of Rome. And so he, after they get into the complex, they burn the temple. He then goes in because, you know, they're in the temple getting gold, seeing if there are any other artifacts they can take because all the dishes were gold. Basically, everything in the temple was gold. There was a lot of wealth there to be plundered. And uh, they would say that he, as both uh, a non-Jew and as the leader of a pagan country, it would be abominable for him to be in that part of the temple. Because, one, non-Jews weren't allowed there, uh, people who were non-Jews nationally. So if I, because I'm a Gentile, I am not Jewish, uh, if I had lived at that time and converted to Judaism... I would still only be allowed so far in the temple. I couldn't go all the way in because I wouldn't be a Jewish male. And so there's that piece of it that's abominable. But also the fact that he's a pagan uh, commander, later to be a pagan emperor. He's in the temple of God, desecrating it, taking things. Uh, He would have been unclean just based on the Jewish Old Testament law for many reasons. One, because being in warfare at that point, having blood and stuff on him, that would make him unclean. Eating unclean food, as people did, who weren't Jews who would have made them unclean. So, that is, uh, that's that. And, yeah, we're not going to talk a lot about all these details. One, though, this seems to indicate a tribulation that's just beyond anything that's ever seen. And it's easy to think, well, I mean, it was one town, yeah, it was bad, a lot of people died. They didn't just kill the other soldiers, but all the inhabitants, that's really horrible. But you think... But I mean, come on, the greatest tribulation that's ever happened, like more than anything that's come before, more than any of the wars or horrors that have come since, is it really that bad? Uh, According to uh, one of the historians who wrote at that point, and I don't have a slide for this because I didn't actually want to put up his description, but as I said before, they just slaughtered everyone to the point where they're climbing over piles of bodies, there were people in the temple when it burned, so there were people burning to death while they're still alive. Jerusalem was besieged for a couple of years, and what they would do, Rome would let people in. So it's like, yeah, go into Jerusalem for your feast days for Passover. Oh, but you can't get out. And so in doing that, and letting people in but not out, and not letting supplies in, they ate up the food and water supply faster, and it got to the point where uh, parents would kill their children and eat them to survive. And so this is... And those are some of the milder things that happened according to the description. So it was truly a horror uh, that was unlike just about anything that's ever happened. Even some of the things we think of in our modern times as being truly horrific. And they are. They certainly are. But it was, it was much, much worse than uh, you would think just from the little bit we get in Scripture. It was really, really bad. So, the abomination of desolation, we could spend an entire sermon just on that, but we're not going to. So, moving right along. Signs. All right. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is another one that's like, you know, Jesus, if you had only not said verse 34. Because then we would just look at this, we would say, obviously, this is talking about Jesus' second coming. He dies, he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven, he's going to be coming back someday, great, no big deal. But, It has to happen by 100 A.D. And I checked my calendar this morning before I come. It is after 100 A.D. Jesus Christ has not returned yet. So it's verse 30 that really makes this problematic. So then we'll appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. But conveniently, now we're also on to the second question. Uh, What will be the sign of your coming? Well, here it is. The... The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So this is confusing. This causes some problems because it's like, okay, you're talking about Christ coming, coming on the clouds with power and glory. So this isn't like uh, just his resurrection. This is coming with power. This is coming as a king, as a ruler. Um, Yeah, so you've got that issue. But then if you skip ahead to 32 and 33, it makes it even more problematic. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, verses 4 through 33, all these things, you know that he, Jesus, is near at the very gates. So he's saying, all right, you're going to see this sign. You're going to see me coming with power and great glory. That's going to happen by about 100 AD. Oh, but when you see me coming, I'm not actually here. I'm just near. I haven't actually come yet. It's like, wait a minute. What? What? What do we do with that? So, uh, in Acts, I don't have a slide for this, as Peter's preaching, he talks about how uh, some of these things were actually fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're going to look at this and we're going to see that actually what Jesus is prophesying here is not his second coming, but his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. And there are other times where Jesus does prophesy his second coming. That's just not what's happening here, but the language is similar, which makes it confusing. So, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Uh, At Jesus' crucifixion, Scripture specifically mentions that as he's hanging on the cross, there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour over the whole land. And the sixth hour, the Jewish day, started at 6 a.m. And so the sixth hour would be noon, the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. So from noon to 3 p.m., the sun was darkened and the moon did not give its light. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, the stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, this is a part where the fact that it's not allegory is important. But the idea here that things as you've known them to be set up are being changed and shaken up, and we see that when Jesus dies, what's one of the things that happens? The temple curtain is torn in two. And this is not a curtain like you have on your window that's you know maybe this thick and it keeps out the light or keeps people from looking in. No, this is a curtain that was like 10 feet thick of fabric and it uh, was between the most holy place and the holy place because God's presence was in the most holy place. And if you went into the most holy place without doing these rituals, which only the high priest could do once a day, you would be instantly killed. And so this curtain was there as a protection from people from being destroyed by coming as sinful people who had not been purified and uh, done what God counted as holiness for seeing him, by not doing that and entering into his presence sinfully, they would just be instantly destroyed. But that curtain is torn, which indicates, okay, things are changing. Things are changing. Access to me, access to God is going to be different than it was before. There's no longer going to be the series of rituals that have to be performed to come into my presence. And that happens, obviously, through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, which enables us as the Bible says, not just to go to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, ask the Father for these things. No, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, you yourselves can enter into the Father's presence and ask him for things. He loves you because you've loved me. So it's not just that he loves Jesus and we go through Jesus. Now, the fact that we can go to the Father is only because of Christ. So it is through Jesus. But we can directly go to the God of the universe and talk to him. We can pour out trouble when we're having trouble. We can ask him for help when we need help. And he listens and he responds because of Jesus. So we see that the darkness happened at Jesus' crucifixion. We see the powers of the heavens that this change is happening. (coughs) But uh, looking at 30, it's like, all right, the sign of your coming, so... All right, some of that's happened at your crucifixion. But what about some of this other stuff? Uh, The sign of the Son of Man appears in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So you've got three things. In heaven, the sign of the Son of Man appearing, and then all the tribes of the earth mourning. So the sign comes first, then the mourning. And you also see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So the tribes of the earth mourning, That also happens at Jesus' crucifixion. Luke 23. So this is when Jesus uh, is on his way to the cross to be crucified, or on his way to Golgotha, the place he was crucified. So he's been whipped. Uh, Simon, who was a guy that they grabbed to carry his cross because Jesus was too weak to physically do it. So Jesus is kind of stumbling to this place. This guy Simon is coming along, dragging his cross. And there followed Jesus a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So you've got this whole crowd of people coming behind mourning for him. And then Jesus is crucified. He's hung on the cross. He dies. And when he dies, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, again from Luke 23, when they saw what had taken place, all that had taken place up to that and Jesus' death, they returned home beating their breasts. All the people. So it's not just this group, but everyone who was present at Jesus' crucifixion, who saw what happened, who saw how he acted on the cross, how he died, they left and they returned home beating their breasts. All the tribes of the earth mourned. And don't forget, at this time, like we saw before in Acts, there were people from all over the world. So all the tribes of the earth were represented at this event. So uh, all the tribes of the earth did mourn. And if that happens after the sign which appears in heaven, what is the sign? It's Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus hanging on the cross is the sign. And seeing that sign caused mourning in all who saw it. But then comes the tricky part. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And it's like, all right, from what we've seen before, you would assume then this somehow refers to Jesus' resurrection, the power of being raised from the dead, which seems like a partial fit, but is it it a full fit? So the Son of Man is a phrase we've seen many times in Matthew. Uh, It's from Daniel, and we're going to look at the two verses that mention it real quick. From Daniel 7, uh, Daniel is having a vision here. He's speaking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So we see there, he comes on the clouds of heaven. He comes into the presence of God the Father, and Jesus is the Son of Man, and what's given to him? a dominion and a kingdom. Power and great glory. Other parts of the New Testament in Hebrews, it talks about Jesus died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and then it says he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, to sit at the right hand of a ruler is to sit, one, in the place of most favor, but also it indicates a sharing in the power of the ruler and that the ruler trusts in you to uh, uh, execute his will, basically, and that you have power and dominion in some of those things. So Jesus sitting down at God's right hand uh, after, in this prophetic type of vision, coming on the clouds in the sense of he comes into God's presence after he ascends into heaven. He sits down at God's right hand. And that is him coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. But that's not all that happens. Joel 2, 28 through 32, which actually is quoted. uh, Verse 29 of Matthew 24 quotes a little bit from uh, Joel 2. And it shall come to pass afterwards, God is speaking, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dream, dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I'll pour out my spirit. Not just on the important people, but even the servants, the people that you would think of as less than you, as maybe less human, less important, even they will have the spirit. Even they will do the same things that the important people are doing. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What will be the sign of his coming? The sign of his coming is his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven. As people there are often times where we ask God for a sign. And it can be about anything. God, give me a sign about my job. God, give me a sign about this relationship. God, I'm not sure you exist. Give me a sign. The greatest sign that God has ever given was his son hanging on the cross, his son dying, his son walking out of the tomb alive, and his son ascending to heaven, sitting down at his right hand, and sending the Holy Spirit to us. Don't look for a greater sign to come. There is no greater sign. So if you're sitting there this morning, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, you know, I don't even know if God exists. I want him to give me a sign. The sign he gave you is his son. The sign he gave you is Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and the Holy Spirit. That's the sign. So explore that sign. Seek after that sign. Ask God, all right, God, if this is really your sign... Because I can't see it. I didn't see Jesus hanging on the cross. I didn't see him walk out of the tomb. The Holy Spirit, of course, being spirit, no one can see it. So if that's the sign, show me that. Make that sign real to me. What does that look like? But that is the greatest sign that we've received. It's the greatest sign that will ever be received. The sign of the the cross, the empty tomb, and the Holy Spirit. So, before this generation passes away, but after all these other things, false prophets and Christs, which we see in Scripture, wars and rumors of wars, which we see in Scripture, natural disasters, which we see in Scripture, tribulation, which we see in Scripture, proclamation of the gospel, which we see in Scripture, and the abomination of desolation, which we do not see in Scripture, but we see in uh, recorded Roman and Jewish history. So, uh, Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who disputes that the temple was actually destroyed in A.D. 70. It is uh, well documented. And then signs, which appear at the beginning to be talking about the end of the world, but are actually talking about Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And so we see that all these things and the signs of his coming did happen within the lifetime of the apostles. So... We can all leave or leave today. Jesus' word has not failed. He is not a liar. He spoke truly. And not only did he speak truly, but he gave us the greatest sign that we could ever hope for. Verses 34 and 35, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, which we see did happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we're not really going to spend a lot of time on 35, but just to pause for a second, after all that information, that we've just talked about from those verses, just to think about how cool it is that Jesus says, even the earth, this thing that every day you get up and you walk on and you interact with, and you just think of it as something that's always going to be there. Maybe not literally, but kind of in your mind. You know, I don't walk and worry, oh no, is the ground going to collapse under my feet? Oh no, am I going to wake up tomorrow morning and walk out my door and a chunk of the earth will be gone and I'll just be looking out into space? But Jesus says, the earth isn't even going to last forever. The earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. How cool is that, that Jesus' words last forever? And not just the words he spoke here about prophecy, but the words he speaks to us about how he loves us, about how his death and resurrection are all we need to be saved from sin. His words that, for those who know him, I will never leave you or forsake you. We could spend the rest of the time just looking at different words that Christ has spoken and how cool it is that those words will never pass away. How encouraging it is for us that Jesus' words stand forever. Think of all the words we speak that pass away. Like even yesterday, I uh, called someone and I told them, I'll be over in 30 minutes to drop something off. And it was actually more like 50 or 55. And they didn't care. It wasn't a big deal. But that's an example of a word of mine passing away that I wasn't able to fulfill that word. And we all have that in our lives, the things we say that we just can't do for whatever reason. And just to think about the fact that Jesus' words stand for all time and beyond time, in eternity, Jesus' words will still be true. Jesus will still love us. He will still never leave us or forsake us, and so on and so forth. So, The rest of the chapter, Matthew 24, 36 through 51, and don't worry, we are not going to spend the same amount of time. This is going to be quick. But, so he has talked about things, but concerning that day and hour, the end of the age, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. There will be two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming." But know this, that if the master of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what will be the sign of Jesus coming? Jesus says, Concerning that day and hour no one knows. And he doesn't just say no people know, even the angels don't know. And Jesus says even the son doesn't know. Somehow, even though Jesus is God, he doesn't know when that's coming. And it's cool in Revelation, uh, there's a part of Revelation where God is speaking and he's speaking to an angel and this angel's proclaiming different things and there is a point where he goes, all right, go tell my son the time has come. He's coming back now. So it's cool to actually see that happen. And I have no idea how it's possible that Jesus is God and yet doesn't know that this is happening, but Scripture says that's how it is, so that's how it is. And when you get to heaven, if it still is important, you can ask God about it, I'm sure he'll have a great answer. But what is the sign of the end of the age? There is no sign. It comes unexpectedly. There is no sign. Deuteronomy 29.29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And we've talked a lot at Hiawatha in the last few chapters that now on this side of the cross, doing the work of the law that God requires, the commandment of God that is required is to believe in his son. So this does not mean fulfilling the Old Testament law anymore. It means believing in Jesus. But for some people, That's a really difficult concept. The idea that there are some things that God keeps secret. There are things that God has not told us. But he's God and that's his prerogative to do that. He has things he has not revealed. He's given us everything we need to know, not always everything we want to know. In Acts 1, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, so all his disciples are there, they come together and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons. The Father is fixed by his own authority. So he says, You know, I could tell you this, but this isn't really any of your business. You don't need to know this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, what is the sign of the end of the age? Well, the sign that comes right before the end of the age, there isn't one, it just comes. This says, like a thief that comes in the night to break into a house. That's how Christ's return will be. But we do have a sign that's come a long ways before, and that's the Holy Spirit. God has given the Holy Spirit to us, and our job now is not to figure out when is the end coming, let me figure out this sign that Christ says you won't be able to figure out. What we're called to do now is to be witnesses of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel to people here in our neighborhoods, around the country, and around the world, as God leads. So, the end of the age, we do not get a sign, but we do get two warnings. The warning of Noah and the warning of the servants. So, the warning of Noah uh, is basically, stay awake. You don't know when your Lord is coming. Just like in the days of Noah, Noah's building this ark, and people thought he was crazy, and they just went on. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, basically, they went on living their normal lives, doing their day-to-day things, didn't change their routines, and then one day they wake up and it starts raining, and you think, that's a lot of rain. And then 40 days later, when it's still raining, they didn't think anything because they were dead. So, they were. Um, Stay awake, you do not know when your Lord is coming. It's going to be like Noah. And then the second warning is the servants. So there's the faithful and wise servant, and there's the wicked servant. So which servant are you? Uh, It's been a long time since Jesus ascended into heaven. He said he's coming back. It's been many years that he has not yet come back, and that can be discouraging sometimes. One, because you either really want him to come back, or just because you wonder, you know, has his promise failed? Is he ever going to come back? Has he forgotten? Peter writes in one of his books, uh, he writes the same warning and he says, people deliberately forget that God is patient. Jesus has not come back yet because God is patient. He's giving people opportunities to repent. He's giving people opportunities to hear the gospel. That is why Christ has not returned yet. And so as people who believe we are God's servants on earth and we are called to be uh, faithful and wise servants, not wicked servants. So whatever point you're in, for, uh, especially for the OT, for the MT here at Hiawatha, for leaders in the church, you are called, uh, you've been set over his household in varying degrees, whether that's the children of Hiawatha, various groups of adults, to give them their food at the proper time. Uh, scripture talks about how the food of God is not just physical food, but the word of God you're called to proclaim the word of God to them, to proclaim the gospel to people. Blessed is the servant that the master will find so doing when he comes. Is that what God will find you doing? If Christ came back today, because he could, he could return right now. Or maybe later. If he came back today, would he find you being faithful with what he's given you? Or would he find you as a wicked servant who said, you know, Jesus hasn't come back in a long time. I'm sure he's not going to come back for a while. So I'm just going to slack off. And then later, when the signs start coming, oh wait, there are none. Then I'll get my act together. Then I'll start being that wise and faithful servant. But for now, I'm just going to do my own thing. Verse 51. So, blesses the servant the master so finds, he will set him over all his possessions. The servants who are blessed, we get to be with Christ forever. We get to share in all the good that he is all the good that he has and all the good that he's done. And there's nothing better. There's nothing better than sharing eternity with Jesus Christ. The wicked servants will be cut into pieces and put with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping, referring to sorrow. Gnashing of teeth, referring to anger or rage. Uh, You know, the idea of like, like gritting your teeth. So the wise and faithful servant gets to share in peace and joy in the presence of God. The wicked servant has an eternity of sorrow and rage and pain waiting for them. So in conclusion, remember, we have received the greatest sign. The cross, the empty tomb, Christ's ascension and sitting down at the right hand of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And the second one, stay awake. Be ready. Because we don't know when Christ is coming back and he is coming back. And we know that because he says his words don't pass away and he said he's returning, so he will return. If, he, if all the predictions he made, if he can predict that a massive building will be destroyed to the point where there aren't two stones on top of each other and it happened, it's an easy thing for him to say, I'm going to come back someday. And he will. So stay awake, be ready. Are you continually going back to the gospel, going back to that greatest sign and in doing so being a faithful and wise servant? Or are you being a wicked servant who says, you know, it's been a long time. Jesus probably won't be back for a while. I'm going to kind of do whatever I want. Today is Communion Sunday. So the first Sunday of every month. Communion is always available, but we make it more of a focus of the service. And this is an opportunity to celebrate that greatest sign, to